Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I guess the story of the week in markets is the Federal Reserve, uh, the Fed raising expectations for rising inflation this year. Uh, as well as rate heights uh, next year and into 2023. And that's obviously the market's trying to digest that. Uh, markets are as w in general, including the commodities market. Uh, when we talk commodities, we always like to chat with Will Rind. He's founder and CEO of Granite Shares, a $1.5 billion in assets under management located in New York. So, Will, thanks so much for joining us again. A again, a, a big change in tone. Well, I would say a hawkish uh, tone. That was probably a little bit more hawkish than the market had been discounting. What did you take away from Fed Chairman Powell's comments this week? Well, I think that, um, you know, much to what's kind of probably been already said in the market, that, you know, the expectations have been brought forward in terms of rate rises. So seems like the, the indication is that, you know, inflation is rising faster than they expected. Um, and, you know, to that end, trying to bring forward uh, expectations of rate rises. There were no... There was no specific comments around the tapering as the asset purchase program. Um, but I think expectations, obviously, that's the big story in terms of rising rates for the first time. They did say they're starting to talk about tapering. Previously, they weren't even talking about talking about tapering. Um, the thing I found interesting, Will, is, all right, so rates are going to rise earlier than expected. What do you do? Sell gold. That makes sense. Rates are going to rise earlier than expected. What do you do? Buy bonds. That doesn't make any sense at all. What's going on there? Well, I think, um, to me, this is all a bit of a knee-jerk reaction because, you know, in my mind, if you just look at that in a vacuum and you say interest rates are rising uh, or interest rate expectations are rising, sell gold, okay, that might be fine, but what about inflation? And right now, we have the lowest real interest rate, i.e. the nominal interest rate minus inflation, that we've had since the 1970s. So in this environment where real rates are so low, inflation's rising much quicker. Even the Fed saying, you know, Jerome Powell, I think the exact words that he used was uh, inflation could turn out to be higher and more persistent than we anticipate. In that environment, I'm not a seller of gold. I think gold and commodities, to me, inflation is still rising. And in this environment, I think you need to have inflation hedges. All right. That's kind of where I wanted to go, Will. It just it, obviously, you look across the commodities complex uh, and you see, you know, big gains for most of the commodities, the softs, the hards, and obviously oil, uh, you know, pushing higher above 70 on WTI crude. I guess my question is, you know, is there room to grow? And if so, what's, what's kind of the drivers there? I think short term, absolutely, yes. Um, we're still in this reopening phase. I mean, obviously, for those of us that you know, watch the commodities market, um, we are now just about to enter the notorious or infamous summer driving season. And you know, what that means is that you know, when kids get out of school and everybody takes off for summer vacation, there's a lot more driving activity, which um, you know, typically leads to higher oil demand. Now, this year, arguably, that's going to be bigger than we've seen in a while because people aren't traveling abroad maybe as much as they would have done in prior years. And so the great American vacation is going to be in full swing. Uh, and so from that perspective, I think on the short term, you know, I looked at what happened with oil yesterday and it, it barely moved. OK, it did go down a little bit, but 
I thought it was very stood up very well, um, given everything else we were seeing in the market. So to me, that's an indication of the strength right now and short term strength in oil, the energy complex more broadly. I think really the only things that got hit and got hit you know, relatively severely were the metals, which you know, can also trade a little bit uh, risk off um, when the U.S. dollar rises. Oil's special, obviously, because you've got this cartel um, that's watching the prices. How high do you think OPEC would let it go? Um, I, well, I think that they can let it or they would let it go significantly high. I don't think $100 oil is out of the question. Um, but, of course, they have their own pressures, as we've seen time and time again, uh, economic pressures and financial pressures. And, you know, they've, they've tried to exercise restraint in terms of putting more supply onto the market. So I think naturally, you know, if the price goes you know, much higher than it is today, I mean, they're, always, they're already talking about uh, putting more production on the market. But uh, I think we'll see some supply response. Dem- little demand response. I'm, I'm there for the demand response. I'm willing to burn as much <laughs> gas as I can this summer. I'm excited in about summer driving season. Well, or, yeah, in um, in a number of different vehicles, actually. Uh, although I promise that my offspring will make this shift to electric <laughs> vehicles. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Will Rind, they're coming in from Granite Shares. They have $1.5 billion of assets under management uh, and uh, located right in New York City. We are going to continue to watch these commodities because after the moves that we saw yesterday, it became even more interesting than just a one-way trip. Let's get over now to Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, Lauren, I was just telling our listeners that the Delta variant of uh, COVID-19 is spreading quickly throughout the UK. I think there's 77,000 cases this week compared to 33,000 cases last week and 99% of the cases that they have uh, tracked down and researched are the Delta variant. So is that going to spread now to the U.S. and to continental Europe? Yeah, I think we are going to see um, Delta variant overtaking a lot of the cases, sort of the stronghold, similar to what the Alpha variant did um, late last year and early this year. You know, I think we're still all waiting to see um, whether or not we'll see an uptick in actual cases, but I think the cases we do see will start to be that Delta variant for sure. Lauren, here in the the States, it's it's obviously a different story, much more positive story in terms of vaccine metrics. Um, Is it too early to start talking? Yeah, it's true. Is it too early to start talking about herd immunity here in the U.S.? Herd immunity is a really challenging thing to talk about in a general sense. And so, you know, I I think we all want to see herd immunity. Um, conceptually in the U.S., and I think we're getting really close. I think that's why we didn't see that sort of spring um, uptick that everyone thought we would see. And the, the, the key focus in order to start having that conversation will be to understand what the, the sort of overarching coverage of immunity is. So we, we want to make sure we get rid of those pockets of, of communities that ha- have been resistant to or have been able, able to access vaccine um, so that we have a really well-spread immunity. The picture of immunity looks similar across the United States rather than high and low and high and low. And that's where you're going to start to see herd immunity um, broadly across the country. Could we see something in the U.S. happen 
the likes of which we're seeing in the UK? Could we see another wave of infection start to rapidly spread, even though um, the majority of the adult population is vaccinated? I think we could. Um, I think everyone is hopeful that we'll get vaccine coverage that's high enough that we won't see that big uptick like the way um, the UK has. Um, but the U.S. Is, is, has really disparate levels of vaccination coverage, um, more so than the U.K., I would say. And so, um, you know, it's hard to compare. It's hard to make predictions on what will happen in the U.S. based on what has happened in the U.K. I think rather we start to look at the state level and say, OK, if this state has pretty high vaccination uh. coverage, we're less likely to see um, that sort of picture in that state. Um, and Over, the overall, really- I'll just remind listeners, overall, the U.K. has more, a higher percentage of its population fully vaccinated than Was that the with US. AstraZeneca, though? Um, yeah. Does that. Hey, Doc, does that make a difference? Is is it are you more likely to get the Delta variant, even if you've been vaccinated, if you were vaccinated with AstraZeneca? Um, I'm not actually sure. I will say that we're just starting to see data back on on the cases, the vaccinated cases from Delta. Most of those cases are people who have not had their second vaccine dose, which would be obviously the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And so the key is to get that full coverage of vaccination, right? Don't stop after that first dose if you're having a two-dose vaccine. Make sure you're getting the booster if that's what's appropriate and recommended by your doctor. Um, And make sure you get through that. You you know, you sort of protect yourself and follow those other um, public health measures until you have you know, full vaccination coverage. And that's going to get the most protection at the individual and at the population level for um, for the Delta variant. So I, I can't speak specifically to AstraZeneca. I haven't looked close enough at the data, but I do think that we know that the vaccines are protective. We just have to make sure that people get the full course of the vaccine that they're getting um, in order to build that protection. Lauren, the uh, the Barkley Center where the Brooklyn Nets play their uh, basketball game last night was packed. Does that make you nervous? You know, it, it's weird right now. Any sort of visible crowd makes me feel nervous. And, <laughs> and you know, we're, we're going to be in a place where we have to tease out what is sort of that emotional reaction um, and what is nervousness because um, we're still coming out of a pandemic and we, we still have pretty high numbers of cases in a lot of places and and highly variable vaccination coverage. I'm not sure I'd be comfortable in events at the Barclays Center yet. I think, you know, the CDC's recommendations are allowing for individual choice in a way that you have to sort of look at the data and feel, you know, decide your level of comfort. I think we're all going to have really variable returns to quote unquote normalcy, you know, and and, and that's okay. I mean, I think um, that sort of slow roll back into what uh, you know, what your interactions in the public look like is okay. Um, and especially if you're choosing to be more cautious um, or more careful, or maybe you have someone in your life who um, is more vulnerable or susceptible and you want to be cautious and, and careful for them, that is absolutely okay right now. Lauren Sauer, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate checking in with you here on a weekly basis, getting the latest uh, on this pandemic and on vaccines. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University uh, School of Medicine. They're not just uh, lacrosse players there. There's some <laughs> world-class uh, you know, scientists and doctors, and we appreciate their time. Now let's bring in... Don Townswick, Director of Equity Strategies at Conning. They have $200 billion of assets under management. And 
uh, Don, let's talk. I guess d high dividend equities are what you're looking at. What do you see right now, and what are the, what are the valuations uh, tell you? Well, in terms of dividend-paying stocks, we've really been at a relative discount now for quite a long time. Um, you know, one of the factors that we look at is is growth fears in the market, and growth fears actually tend to drive um, the growth stocks, the technology stocks that we've all seen rallied so far. It tends to drive them up because they can grow in a growth scarcity environment, and that's left some of these dividend payers and in, in broader in broader terms, the value stocks uh, behind. And so their, their valuations still look relatively attractive, even though they've had a recent strong rally. Don, it's interesting. When I think about dividend stocks, one of the names that really jumps out at me is Apple. I mean, here's a company with $100 billion of net cash on the balance sheet. They're going to have free cash flow in each of the next two years of $100 billion, yet their dividend yield is less than 1%. That's got to be frustrating for a dividend investor who would probably love to throw Apple on the portfolio. Absolutely. Uh, we, would, we would love to have Apple in the portfolio if only they returned more value to the shareholder in terms of dividends. And it's been a big frustration across uh, the, the whole kind of fraternity of, of dividend investors. And, you know, we would, uh, we would like them to take some of that free cash flow and, and distribute it and get their yield up closer to two or two and a half percent. So why, um, why don't they? Well, that's a great question. I think that um, there are many technology stocks, particularly on the equipment uh, and semiconductor side, that have for a very long time paid an attractive dividend. And they've done it while growing at a, at a fairly good pace. Um, I can only speculate based upon <clears throat> company comments and, and maybe our, our biases here that, that they see that cash hoard as an opportunity for acquisitions that they might see in the future, and they'd rather keep it on their balance sheet. But as it grows and grows, uh, one can only imagine that there's going to be a, a growing pressure along with that. that uh, cash they never make any big acquisitions. Like, when? Well, when do you get buy something? <laughs> Uh, who, you know, who knows? Uh, I wish I knew, and I'd, I'd buy a lot of that uh, <laughs> acquisition target myself. Hey, Don, talk to us about um, tax policy and how that impacts your strategy, your dividend strategy, because I know that President Biden's talking about some changes to the capital gains taxes and so on. Absolutely. Um, historically speaking, and this is uh, really the 30 years I've been in the business, capital gains tax rates have been lower than the, their tax rates paid on dividends, which often are, are taxed at the level of your ordinary income as an investor. Uh, with the talk about raising capital gains rates, uh, it, it means that in relative terms, the go-go growth stocks that don't pay a dividend, those stocks are going to become relatively less attractive as, the, um, as your tax rate goes up on, on, on the proceeds when you sell. So uh, we think that, that that's actually a, a positive in relative terms for dividend-paying stocks as perhaps the new tax laws equalize the tax treatment of capital gains and dividends. That's going to give a boost to the dividend-paying stocks. Because the other guys have to pay more taxes, too. I've always found this interesting because um, 
as the owner of the company, you're paying taxes on the cash that you get paid out, that you pay yourself out from profits. But those profits are also getting taxed. <laughs> yes. Yes, the question of double not fair, Don. Has, uh... <laughs> well, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> double taxation is a, uh, has been a problem for years, and I think that uh, if, if, more people, if more people thought in those terms, I think that there would be more pressure on, on reducing that double taxation load. For now, we're still going to have to live with it. Yeah, so, Don, how do you guys typically screen for dividends? Is it a certain yield, and you do it by industry, or how do you do that? Well, we actually do take a look uh, at a certain yield or higher. But um, unlike many dividend managers, once a company has meet, met a certain minimum, we actually tend to be agnostic after that because what we're looking at is companies that have a, a very manageable debt load and companies that are generating the, the free cash flow that you referred to before um, consistently year after year after year. Uh, our hidden talent really is that we're uh, we, we're primarily a fixed income shop, and so we have credit analysts that have decades of experience. And they're looking at these same investments uh, for the, the, the safety and, and credit worthiness of their debt. We take that information and also look at the credit worthiness, if you will, of their dividend payment also. How sustainable is the dividend? Can they grow it? Are they generating excess free cash flow after they've paid their dividend? Right. To me, that's our secret weapon in terms of finding companies that pay a dividend and raise it. Hey, Don, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate hearing about uh, your strategy there, dividend-paying stocks. We don't talk enough about that, I think. Don Townswick, Director Agreed. of Equity Strategy at Conning. They have about $200 billion under management, a lot of it focused on dividend-paying uh, companies and the income that they can produce for shareholders. This is Bloomberg. You know, Matt, when I came onto the street in 86, insider trading was really a thing. You know, we had Ivan Boski, you know, Drexel Burnham Lambert. I mean, some really juicy things. They wrote books and made movies about it. But I don't Sweet. It feels like I don't see it, at least not on the scale that, that we used to see it. So, But actually, looking at the Bloomberg Terminal today, we have a good old-fashioned insider trading uh, report in there. Uh, and we have the reporter, and this reporter is a Duke grad. So double good story here. We're overwhelmed by all these UNC Tar Heel <laughs> reporters. Being here a Duke grad is more important, I think, than reporting on insider. I trading. think so. Uh, Bree Bradham, she joins us here. She's a reporter for Bloomberg News. And so, Bree, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about this case. Give us the background of this in insider trading case because it's got a little twist because it does include an, an NFL player who lost quite a bit of money. But give us the background on this case. Hey, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so, like you said, this is a very interesting case. So, I've spent the last three days down at a courthouse in downtown Manhattan following this case and there's kind of two parts that I'll break down for you here. So one is the insider trading case. We have Donald Blackstad who's facing charges and prosecutors say that he committed insider trading talking with um, an accountant who worked at Illumina. Um, all of this, well, Blackstad's based in San Diego um, and so he was talking with this uh, um, accountant and they say that he used insider information to trade and along with some others, so they say he was the leader of this insider trading ring, they used money to trade um, including some options 
questions related to Illumina and make millions of dollars doing that over the course of 2016 to 2018. Around the same time that this hmm. was going on, they're also saying that he, well, he's charged with committing investment fraud as well. And yeah, so, there was some shady, I mean, yeah. it sounds even shadier because I, I love your story, by the way, Bree, um, because you, you, you put some details in there that I think make it more interesting because I can imagine being there. So at the steakhouse, for example, <laughs> um, you know, Always he, a steakhouse. He, he gives this football player a prospectus. The guy reads it. He's into it for an energy company that apparently has some kind of storage technology for renewables that is just about to go off the hook because California is going to change a law. And this baller says, all right, I'm in for 150 The guy then takes his money. Uh, the investment manager puts it into a bank account where he keeps also his personal money and apparently uses that lump sum to make an offer to pick up another company unrelated to the energy company in which the baller wanted to invest in the first place. Yeah, so it gets very complicated, and we're still seeing the prosecution and defense lay out their cases. Right now, the prosecution is um, questioning witnesses, so we haven't actually gotten to um, hear all the defense's side yet. But um, So what happened here was we have this NFL player, Corey Leger, who'd been um, picked in the first round of the 2011 draft. He's um, a pretty high-profile um, defensive lineman, and he went out to um, dinner at this San Diego steakhouse. Um, and Donald Blackstad was there, and they talked about this company, Midcontinental Petroleum, that Blackstad um, was hyping up. And later on, he sent um, Luger this uh, prospectus that they ended up reading out a lot of parts of in court yesterday, some very technical language there, going over some of these very specific clauses and talking through um, you know, just what Luger's experience was with this process. And then he ended up wiring um, Midcontinental Petroleum's account $150,000. And that's kind of where the NFL player becomes involved in this story and prosecutors are saying that um, this money ended up being used for, at least parts of it ended up being used for personal um, purposes. And the defense said in their opening statements, however, that um, Blackstead was using one account for all purposes. So they're saying that, you know, this was an account that he used for business, used for personal purposes and saying that he put his own money um, involved in business purposes, too. So how much money are we talking about here on this insider trading deal? Again, I'll mention the amount. I just haven't seen too many high-profile ones recently. How, about, how much are we talking about here? Yeah, that, that's obviously a great question. Um, so we originally saw, when prosecutors were first talking about this, that um, Blackstad and his associate, so he had several people involved in this. That's why they're calling it a, you know, an insider trading ring. Um, they initially tossed out the figure of about $6 million um, that was made. And actually what we were seeing in court where they left off at the end of the day yesterday was having an SEC economist go over um, the very specifics of this trade and talking about the timing around um, trades around Illumina announcements. Corey Leger got paid $50 million for a five-year contract. <laughs> I just yes. want to point out, um, it's better, it's, this is the lesson to take away from this, it's better to be a successful NFL star than an inside trader. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's weird though, I mean, Bree, it's, you always see like a, it, it, it's another angle to this story is, you know, a, a professional athlete or a celebrity Oftentimes they're targeted by some of these scam artists, and it's and you know that's why you have these financial 
representatives and managers and things like that. He was with. He was with his finance. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think it's time to get another. That's. I look at these guys and I'm like, why don't they just buy stocks and bonds and mutual funds like the rest of us? Why do they need to go in on these crazy deals? But um, is this football player going to testify? Do you think? Yes, he actually spent yesterday on part of the day on the stand, and so they had him come in. Um, and he. It's actually interesting because you know we're still in the era of COVID. Um, and so you go into the courtroom, people are spaced out, um, wearing masks, and the witness box is actually um like witness boxes and there's plexiglass around it and so he came in and sat down and um told the the jury and um answered questions from prosecutors and defense about this and he hasn't seen any of his money back right he said he has not gotten any um of the money back and (laughs) there was another witness that spoke yesterday um a park city um utah based general contractor who talked about he'd given a hundred thousand dollars before um prior to the nfl player um into mid-continental petroleum and they asked for half of that back him and his business partner and they got half back okay over the course of this but yeah i thought it was cool that Leger, you know got the prospectus and read it i mean it's not like he didn't know what he was doing he just got scammed i would be like uh here's my financial advisor give it to him you know <laughs> and, and order another steak because they had wagyu beef apparently 26 dollars an ounce there well this is something that they talked about quite a lot they went over on um, the specific clauses and you know um Leger, as they were reading through this he said um, quite often, you know, I, I looked at this document. I don't necessarily remember this clause. Um, I'm not quoting him on that, but that was kind of um, the conversation that they were having. And he said that, um, yes, he had. there were emails and stuff going back and forth um, between Blackstad and all these conversations going on and um, a lot of documents there that they were showing. Real quick, any like t- t- 10 seconds timing on this? When are, when are, when are they going to have a resolution, the court? Yeah, um, the tentative plan that they were talking about potentially um, yesterday, just kind of in conversations between the um, attorneys and the judge, was trying to get it to the jury by um, this coming Friday. Okay. But that still seemed a little bit up in there. All right. A great reporting, Bree. Really appreciate you bringing this story to us and joining us here on radio. Bree Bradham there, um, a Duke graduate and a Bloomberg reporter talking about uh, NFL star Corey Leger testifying in an insider trading case um, where he talks also about the Wagyu beef that he got. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.